several announcements to this uh, this evening. Uh, new new uh, bulletins are out for September, so make sure you pick one up. And also, uh, we have men's prayer breakfast not this coming Saturday, but a week from Saturday at 7:30. Uh, men's prayer breakfast followed by the deacons' meeting, and then uh, the training is going on on Saturday morning. I heard um, from. Uh, one source today, Jeff did an outstanding job this last Saturday morning uh, teaching through the uh, procedures for the way the gospel is, is uh, shared at the uh, Fort Bend County Fair. So, uh, uh, you know, it's always good to have more tools in your tool belt. And then um, we have also the Evangelism and Apologetics Seminar coming up on Saturday, October 7th. And I think the times are going to be something like 8.30 or 9 until about 4.30 in the afternoon. It's an all-day thing, and there'll be a break for lunch. So that's um, that's that schedule. Uh, I've texted him about it and um, haven't heard back. Also, the picnic for the annual church picnic, which is where we may see rain the next time, is going to be on October 21st. Hopefully we don't have to wait that long for rain. So those are the announcements. In terms of prayer requests, I talked to uh, Charlie Clough today, and he's uh, doing well. He's still recovering from his time in the hospital, which uh, takes a little time to regain your strength, and he's got a heart valve problem that they can't fix, so they're, going, they're approaching it with medication, so pray, uh, pray for that. And, um, and I guess that's about, about it in terms of those prayer requests. I did hear from... Uh, Mark Perkins yesterday that they've been able to hire uh, someone and that things seem to be going uh, really well for them as they're continuing to just get established on the ground. It takes a lot of time, two or three years to get a ministry established, to get your personnel, meet people, all of the things that, that are part of doing a, a pioneer missions thing. So we need to be praying, uh, praying for them. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will, then I will pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so grateful we have you to lean on, that you are our strong tower, our fortress, our rock. You are our refuge, and that we live in a world where not only is there a spiritual dimension in terms of the angelic revolt, but that we are involved in a battle with our own sin natures. And, Father, we need to constantly be saturating our souls with your word, for it is your word under the God, the Holy Spirit, that you have ordained to be the real source of, of strength and power for us in this church age. 
And, Father, we desperately need that. We are to take every thought captive for Christ, and that is a almost a full-time job. And that means we have to constantly pursue our studies, pursue reading, pursue not, learning your word, memorizing Scripture, so that we can be... Um, so that we can be used by you in ways that we cannot imagine. And, Father, we just thank you for those opportunities. Now, Father, tonight as we continue this study, help us to see how things fit together and how uh, the foundation for the rest of the Scripture is laid in these opening chapters of Genesis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to be looking tonight at two things. We're going to bring in the angelic revolt and its effect on mankind, how that relates to one another, developing that a little more from what I ended with last week. And then we're going to look at the global flood. This is uh, lesson five, so you should download those notes. You should read those notes. And if you aren't aware of it, at the end of the notes, it tells you what you should be reading in Scripture and prepare for the next lesson. So you should be reading through those those passages uh, as well. So we're looking, going to start looking at the angelic revolt. And tonight, as we look at, um, begin looking at the global flood, this is a topic that will take up the next uh, two or three lessons as we go forward because this is, uh, uh, is so significant. You have uh, three chapters. Genesis, actually, four chapters, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is when you have the um, Noahic covenant. So there's a lot covered there, and that's when the Holy Spirit takes four chapters to cover an event, that means it's important and we need to pay attention uh, to, to the details. So what we have seen so far in terms of our timeline, and we have a new chart here, and I've uh, suggested one uh, one one suggestion, and uh, and that is over here when we get to the rapture, there should be kind of a hook arrow up here at the top so that we understand uh, the significance of that. But we start off with all of our events. So everybody stand up. You all are getting tired sitting there falling asleep already. And we'll go through our timeline. And the... Um, the one thing that has been added is the tribulation. Now, we've been trying to think through what is a good uh, motion for the tribulation. And uh, Martin Davis put this, uh, put this together based on what I had been doing, kind of uh, cleaned it up, so that's good. But um, so I thought of two things, and they, he was doing this with their kids. And so we thought of wh- what? What's the first thing that comes to your mind with the tribulation? What? What? Uh, tribulation, but what? So we thought of seven years. So that's what they did with the kids, just doing seven years. And I thought of, well, you could do something like um, point to your forehead because 666, is, that's a good one, uh, the 666 on your forehead because that's going to be, be the sign. So something like that, but maybe one of you all can come up with something uh, something better, but we'll just do seven for the seven years of tribulation tonight, okay? All right, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, then you have the uh, call of Abraham, and then you have the Exodus. 
Then they, after they leave Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai where they get the law, and we use the ten for the Ten Commandments. And then there's the conquest of the land, and then they establish the kingdom. And so you have the, the, the kingdom is established, and then you have, um, after there is the, the re- revolt and the split between the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, then both are taken out into exile, and then there is a partial, uh, partial return. Then we get to the New Testament, and that begins with the birth of the promised and prophesied Messiah. So you have the birth of the Messiah, and then he is crucified, and he's buried, and then he rises from the dead, and then there's the ascension to heaven. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, and you have uh, the establishment of the church, and we're in the church age. And the church age ends when Jesus returns in the rapture and we're taken to heaven. And that's followed by the seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus returns to the earth and then he establishes again his kingdom. After a thousand years, there will be a revolt and then the great white throne judgment. And that brings us to the end of the timeline. So you've just gone through the whole Bible. So you can sit down now. So what we've seen in the last, we've gone through four lessons now, and what we've seen in lesson one was God's creation and the divine institution. So we came to understand the creator-creature distinction and the uh, creation of the uh, three divine institutions, uh, responsible choice number one, marriage number two, and volition number three. Uh, the second lesson focused on wrong views, the pagan views of creation, and how pagan views always have either matter or gas or something like that that is impersonal and and is eternal. And then just by chance, there's something that is uh, developed or created. In the ancient world, they had the various gods, and usually one god got hacked up and the body parts were used to create the material or physical physical universe. Today, the pagan worldview is based on uh, evolution, that time plus chance equals complexity, which is absurd if you understand the laws of probability. The third lesson looked at what happened to the world as a result of the fall, the, what the sin did to the world. It, sin isn't just something spiritual. Sin has a physical impact. If you're getting over 50 or over 60 or over 70, you ought to be fully aware of that. We live in a corrupt world, and it's affected not just the spiritual. A lot of people think sin is just a spiritual thing. No, sin has has had an impact. We'll develop this some more uh, later on tonight, but that it's a physical, physical impact. So it affected uh, human beings, it affected the physical universe, and it affects the divine institutions. Lesson four looked at the three responses to the modern pagan worldview of of evolution and saw how they compromised, two of the views were compromises with the pagan worldview, which had really negative effects 
on our understanding of, of the Scripture. And then in this lesson, we're going to develop a little more. It's not in the, uh, uh, the curriculum that the quarks put together, but we need to add some, some good uh, information in teaching kids about the angelic revolt. And because we start seeing this more in Genesis chapter 6, I felt like this was the appropriate place uh, to develop it. You can't just teach everything within the framework of, um, <coughs> of the first couple of chapters of Genesis. So we're, we're going to see this as it develops with the, uh, with, with the sons of God. So those are, that's the first five lessons. So let's talk about the creation and the angelic revolt. Now we've already touched on this to some degree. And so it's important to talk about this, that, that there are two basic intelligent creatures that God has created. The first are the angels and they are created before Genesis chapter one. And they are present then when God creates the earth. And we know that from Job 38, verses 4 and 7. So we've already covered this. This is just part of review. And at this point, uh, God has uh, condescended to show up and uh, have a one-sided conversation with Job in order to show Job just how limited his understanding is, how limited his knowledge is. And so God just began with a series of questions, and this goes through chapters 38, chapter 39, chapter 40, and it's all designed to show Job that that he can't really understand any of these things that God has done. So if God were to explain to him why God allowed all this suffering in his life, God is pointing out, you wouldn't understand that either, even if I told you. You don't have the capacity to handle all of that. But in Job 38.4, and you have a series of questions, so I've eliminated verses 5 and 6 just to get to the main point. He, God begins saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, when do you lay the foundations for something? If you're going to build a house, when do you lay the foundation? That's the first thing you do, and then everything fits together. So that is a metaphor because the earth doesn't have the same kind of foundation that a house would have, but God is laying, creating those basic elements that make up our planet. And so where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When? So the when here is referring to the fact that when he laid the foundation the morning stars sang together. Now, this just happens to be an aside for you. This actually means to sing. Sometimes in the Scripture, you have uh, the angel saying something, and it says they sang, but the original Greek or Hebrew says they said. One example of that is in, is in Luke chapter 2, when the angels showed up to the shepherds out in shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem, and we sing every year, Hark the Herald Angels Sang. No, they didn't. The text says they said. They made a proclamation. They did not sing. But we give Charles Wesley a little poetic license uh, there to, to say that. So the morning stars sang together. 
So that's a reference to angels, that they ha- there's no division among the angels yet. They're united, so there's no fall yet among the angels. And all the sons of God, and throughout the book of Job, which is probably written either at the same time, some people think Moses wrote it at the same time he wrote the Pentateuch. Other people say, well, maybe someone else wrote it, uh, but it was the events take place during the period of time when when Abraham was older and probably Isaac is is alive but in that time frame but it's the old, oldest probably the oldest book of the Bible and it's identifying for us who the sons of God are this is a phrase that's used several times in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and it tells us that these are uh the angels the spirit beings And then the second thing we learned is that there was the greatest of these angels, who's the most intelligent, the most capable, has the highest position over all of the angels, and is especially close to the throne of God. And his name was, in the Hebrew, it was Hillel bin Shahar, which means the the bright and morning star. That was that was a reference to to Venus. So in Latin, that was Lucifer. And so that's how we come to call this being Lucifer. But a good translation is shining star. He was bright. Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we're told that he appears as an angel of light. Well, that's his basic nature. You know, he doesn't show up as the prince of darkness, all dark and uh, with a pointy tail and fangs and all of this other stuff. He looks like he's just the greatest creature God ever created. And he was, and he it went to his head. He gave in to arrogance and self-absorption, and wanted to be uh, wanted to be worshipped as God. He thought he, as a creature, could substitute uh, and do everything that that God did. And so that's described in Isaiah fourteen twelve through fourteen, and Ezekiel twenty eight twelve to nineteen. Now his his disobedience to God. Um, was the beginning of a revolution against the authority of God as the creator of all of the angels. And so God gave them a period of time to decide if they were going to be obedient and um, loyal to God or if they were going to follow Lucifer or uh, Shining Star in his revolt against God. And in Revelation 12:4, we're told that his, and that refers to the previous verse, which mentions the fiery red dragon who is who is Satan. Uh, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. And so again, there's this me- metaphor of the stars that refers to the angels. So a third of the angels. Uh, that God had created, and there's myriads of myriads. It, it, there's an untold number, millions and millions of angels that God created, and a third of them joined um, Shining Star or Satan in his revolt. And that gives, that's where, where that number is based. Fourth thing that we see is that it is not specifically stated as such in Scripture, but there is the inference in several passages that that um, that Satan has challenged God's verdict against the 
against uh, Satan and the fallen angels. In Matthew twenty five forty six, we are told that when at the at the um, judgment of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the Gentiles who survived the tribulation, that those who did not uh, trust Christ as Savior are cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. So the verb tense, again, is a perfect tense. That indicates something that is completed action in the past. So at the time Jesus is speaking, he says the lake of fire has already been created. It wasn't created for human beings. It was created for Satan and his angels. And so those who will choose to follow Satan in his rebellion against God, whether it's the uh, fallen angels or also referred to as demons, whether it's the fallen angels or unbelieving humanity, their destiny will be in the eternal lake of fire. And so it is often thought that Satan, uh, that why is it if God has already created the lake of fire and the angels have already been uh, judged by God and sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire, then why aren't they there? The the lake of fire has been there for at least seven or eight thousand years. Why aren't the fallen angels? Why aren't they there? What has caused a delay in their punishment? And so, uh, it is thought that that Satan must have challenged the verdict like an appeal. And this has come up with several people. This isn't, um, uh, for example, Donald Gray Barnhouse came up with this idea of uh, some sort of trial. There were also some, um, uh, there was a Hebrew scholar by the name of Davidson who back in the mid-19th century had this idea that there must have been some sort of challenge to God to delay the execution of the punishment and so it is often said that he must have challenged God's um, justice and love. How can a just God send his and a loving God send his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? And so God decided that he would give a a demonstration to show why it was the punishment was so severe. Punishment should be somewhat comparable to the crime committed and should not be extreme. So that's the, the, the general idea here. It's more complex, I believe, than what that simple sentence implies because it begins with this idea uh, that is, um, excuse me, it begins with this idea uh, that that sin is something or disobedience to God is something that is uh, not very um, significant. Now, we think that way sometimes. I want you to think about this, and we're going to develop this a little more as we go along. When Eve and then Adam sinned, and they immediately felt the penalty of sin, which is spiritual separation from God. When God came looking for them, they ran and hid. So that's already happened. 
when the you, we come to the curse section, starting in verse uh, 315, when God begins to spell out what, hap- what was going to happen to the, to the serpent. He tells the serpent that you're going to be cursed more than, that's a key phrase, more than the beasts of the field. That tells you that the beasts of the field have, this judgment has already fallen on them. Something has happened to them. Something has happened to the animals. Something happened to the to the plant world. Something happened to the planet is, itself. When when Adam and Eve sinned, that changed. There was an instant change that occurred throughout the that just exploded and spread through the entire universe. Everything is affected by that sin. Sin corrupts things, and so part of what God is demonstrating is uh, the sinfulness of sin. And if you want to think about uh, who did the most environmental damage, it wasn't the human race. It wasn't everybody since Adam and Eve. It was what they decided. They did an incredible amount of damage that cannot be, uh, uh, cannot be repaired by separating your, your paper from your plastic uh, and uh, making sure that everything goes to the right landfill. It cannot be changed by somehow uh, cutting down on, uh, on carbon or CO2 production and keeping up with your carbon points and all of that. It can't be fixed by any of the things that are, are often fo- suggested and followed by the um, by the environmentalists. In fact, most of the time, their solutions just make things worse. I remember, and I'm not the brightest bulb in the in the box, but I remember in the mid '70s when everybody decided we're going to shift to plastic instead of paper, so we don't cut down the rainforest. And I was thinking. You can't get rid of plastic. Plastic goes into, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't break down. Paper break, breaks down and you can, and it'll decompose, but, but this is crazy. And it's taken them, what, 50 years before they find out. Now, I was just in, up in, um, up in New Jersey this last week or week and a half ago, and I went to a Target. And they'll sell you a bag for your stuff, a nice cloth bag, for a buck and a half if you don't come in with one. But they don't have any plastic or any paper to give anybody. So we'll see how that works. But since they make a little more money that way, it's probably something that they'll they'll uh, keep around for a while. But what we see is that the damage done by sin is more than just the, just separation from God, alienation from the life of God, as, as uh, Ephesians uh, 4.18 puts it. It is much more than that. So what Satan is challenging is really every attribute of God, that he's just not worthy to be the creator. He's not worthy to be the sovereign. He's not worthy to do any of these things. He's really basically cruel and wicked, and so God is going to make have a demonstration with the human race and in human history that that the consequences of disobeying an omniscient, omnipotent creator, thinking that you know more than an omniscient, omnipotent creator, 
uh, is, is, has horrific consequences. And so that's what human history demonstrates, is the consequences of even an innocuous act, such as eating a piece of fruit, if that is in violation of the command of the Creator, then it is that breach of authority, the breakdown of authority, that reverberates and has brought about all of these, this damage. And so what it's showing is the creature does not have the capabilities because he's never infinite He's in his knowledge or in his abilities. He's always finite. And so he, he is not going to do nothing but destroy everything by his act of independence. So only the omniscient, omnipotent creator God has the knowledge and power to truly be in charge of his creation. Sixth point here is because he's omniscient, because God is omniscient, he knows what is absolutely righteous. And because he is flawless in his being, he is absolutely righteous, he can only do that which is consistent with his righteousness. And therefore, his justice, which is the application of his righteousness to his creatures, uh, is the the standard of of perfection, the standard of perfect righteousness. So only God can make those righteous calls. Man cannot do it. No creature can do that because they do not have the knowledge necessary. Seventh point is uh, because God is also perfect love, and he is a unity in his being. The love must work consistently with his righteousness and his justice. They're not in conflict with each other. We have a view of love that, that if you're love, you're going to be permissive. If you love somebody, you're going to be permissive. You're going to let them get away with what they want to get away with, and there's not going to be any consequences. And we see where that goes in a couple of generations uh, that are alive today. Their parents uh, did not discipline them. So uh, under this seventh point, because God is also perfect love, he knows that the consequences of disobedience are so destructive to his creatures that it would be unloving if those who disobeyed him were not also punished. The consequences of disobedience are so harsh and so bad that the loving thing is to punish the offender. You know, the, the problem you have with so many people who are permissive and who do not want to have the, the full force of the law ever leveled against anybody is because they, they're more concerned about the criminal than they are the victim. And they put uh, the vi- criminal has to have all of these rights, and, and then they just ignore the horrible things that have happened uh, to the victim. And they put the focus on the wrong thing. The eighth point is that our conclusion is that human history is to demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. We treat sin too lightly many times in our own life and in in the lives of others. Oh, it it just wouldn't be that bad. But there are what we see as a result of Eve's disobedience is that every star, every planet, every molecule, every atom in the universe 
well, it became corrupted because of that choice of rebellion. And it led to the greatest environmental disaster that could ever occur. And nothing that people think about today is even, can even come close to matching it. So it had more, sin had more than just a spiritual effect. Even the earth itself now, scripture says, groans under the judgment of the curse of sin. This is what we see in Romans 8, 18 through 22. And I put 18 in here because that heads, that's the heading of the, of the paragraph. And Paul is really talking about the fact that we, we live in a world where there is suffering. And many people have, have, you know, suffer a, a thousand times more than any of us in this room will ever experience. Uh, they live in areas that are war torn. They are like these, uh, poor Christians. And they are poor economically, and they are, uh, I'm using the word also because of their, 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 what they're having to face, where their homes are burned to the ground, and then they'll be arrested, and they'll be tortured, and uh, all manner of vile things will be done to them before they are finally killed, and their soul is released to go to heaven. And so Paul says about all of the suffering that we endure, that the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is a powerful verse to think about, especially if you're going through great difficulty right now. Uh, whatever the suffering may be, that's not, when we are face-to-face with the Lord, we're going to forget all about the, the most vile suffering we ever faced on this earth because the glory that will be ours in heaven with the Lord is going to be so incredible that whatever we suffered is going to pale in insignificance. So Paul goes on to say, for, in verse 19, explaining the previous verse, the earnest expectation of the creation. See, he he almost personifies the creation, the physical creation here. And he says the creation itself is suffering so much that it awaits the revealing of the sons of God. That's a reference to when we are revealed, when we return with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the end of the tribulation, when he returns to the earth in glory and establishes his kingdom because the curse will be partially rolled back at that time. He says, uh, and then Paul, uh, Paul goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to futility. Futility, it's just a waste. It's subject to, to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope. See, it, 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 there's a recognition that it's, that you go out and as beautiful as God's creation can be, it's still flawed, but it reminds us that there was a, there's a perfection that we don't have today. Look at all those thorns and thistles. Just go out to Big Bend sometime or go out to Arizona and fall into one of those saguaro cacti, and you will recognize that things are not what they ought to be. 
And so he goes on to say in verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, that the, that the physical universe, the physical planet, everything that relates to the physical planet is under the bondage of corruption. And it's remarkable that the universe didn't just, just fly apart at the seams. But Charlie Clough said this one time in a uh, early, I think it was an early version of his framework series, that God created the universe in such a way that he built in enough flexibility to handle the corruption that sin would bring. Instead of the universe flying apart at the seams, God built into it uh, the flexibility to handle what would come. And so the, the creation itself is in the bondage of corruption. And then in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So that, that describes the horror of what happened to the physical universe because of sin. And, and, uh, this is the worst environmental disaster that could ever take place. It affected not just this planet, but everything. So this is, this shows the issue of sin and the sinfulness of sin. Remember, I'm answering the question why that Satan might have raised. How can you judge your creatures in this way? Because that little act of eating a piece of fruit reverberates through everything that God that God made. So from there we go to the fact that we are observed by these angels, by both the elect angels or the holy angels, which are the ones that remain loyal to God, and the fallen angels who are sometimes referred to as demons. These are the ones who uh, follow Satan in his revolt against God. And we see this referenced in passages like Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So we see here that all of the angels still come together in a convocation before the throne of God because the demons have not been sent off to the lake of fire yet. There is a pause in the execution of their judgment. Uh, in verse, uh, in Job 2, 1, we read, again, there was a day when the sons of God, see, it refers to the angels as the sons of God. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And then in Job 2, 2, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going back, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now, that imagery is picked up again in 1 Peter 5, 8. And Peter says, you know, Job occurred probably around uh, 2000, 1800 to 2000 B.C. And Peter writes some 2,000 years later and says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. See, he's still cruising for victims. He's out there like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour, looking for victims like Job. And he can only, notice, he could only do things to Job if 
that God gave him permission for. So Satan's not an autonomous agent as much as he would like to be. He's limited by God's sovereignty. Then we have the elect or the holy angels. And they, one of the things we learn from them is that they rejoice over each person that is saved. This is indicated in uh, Luke 15, 7 and 15, 10. Jesus says, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who changes his mind and accepts the gospel than over 99 just persons or moral people who need no repentance. Luke 15.10 says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that related to Christ, that he was watched by the angels, he was seen by the angels. That's uh, the whole, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but that just that one point. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9, we're told that we are watched by the angels. They're observing us. They're observing our walk with the Lord. For I think that God has displayed us, Paul says. He's displayed us in the context he's talking about the apostles, but it applies to all believers. That God has uh, displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels... And to men. So angels are watching us. Ephesians 3.10 says that to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, by the body of Christ, we are to display the wisdom of God because those angels are watching us. That uh, now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the who? to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So we are an object of learning. They're getting an education about God and how he deals with us by watching us. And this is what 1 Timothy 5, uh, 21 and 1 Peter 1, 12 will talk about. 1 Timothy 5, 21 says the elect angels... Uh, it's a charge to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. So he is charged, we are given our charge before the elect angels who are watching us that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. And in 1 Peter 1, 1, 12, it says that to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, that is the gospel, things which angels desire to look into. So we, it's like the human race is in a huge coliseum, and the angels are packing the stands, and they're observing us to learn about God, to learn about grace, to learn about all of the things that they can't learn otherwise because God didn't create them but as servants. So that brings me to point 10, that through, uh, and, uh, through, through, I think that should be through, and through, no, and though in responsible choice, 
the human race chose to disobey God. So they chose to disobey God in the period between uh, Genesis 3 and Genesis 5. The human race exercising the first divine institution and their responsible choice uh, increasingly chose to disobey God and pursue their own sinful desires. It was also enhanced by the activity of fallen angels. And this brings us to our opening to the flood passage and the flood narrative. In Genesis 6-1, Moses writes, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God... Now who are the sons of God? These are angels, but when we see what they did, we realize they're fallen angels, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, Job tell, I mean, uh, Jude tells us a little bit more that they left their first estate. So in some way, they were able to exchange their, um, their body of light for some uh, a mortal body, and so that that would enable them to then reproduce. But it was part of a strategy by Satan in order to destroy the purity of the human race. We have to remember and go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God told the woman that the seed of the serpent would strike the seed of the woman on the heel, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So that verse tells us in Genesis 3.15 that the promised deliverer, the one who would come, had to be 100% human. Satan picks up on that, and he's going to uh, try to infiltrate and destroy the gene pool, the human gene pool, to destroy the purity of the human race so that it will prevent God from fulfilling the promise of having a descendant who is 100% human. And we just got through on Thursday nights going through a series on Christology, and the bottom line there was that Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to be able to be the mediator between God and man and to pay the penalty for sin. He couldn't be part human and part God. He had to be 100% God and 100% man. And so what, what happens here is these angels, these fallen angels, are entering into human history, taking on mortal bodies so that they can uh, impregnate the daughters of men, human women, and then the results of their of their union were half human, half angel, and these became, as we're told in verse uh, four, and I've got two translations up here that they were what was called the Nephilim. Now, some people think that the term Nephilim is a technical term for for them. I don't think so. It, it comes etymologically. It comes from. Uh, a word for for those who are fallen, and uh, but but later on you have the word nephilim applied to some of the Canaanites. 
Now, if everybody is, except for Noah's family, are killed in the flood, then you don't have any descendants of these Nephilim surviving the flood. Now, there are some people who try to make that happen, and, and, and they're just not thinking very clearly, although they're very bright people. Uh, there were giants. Is giant a term that necessarily means half angel or half, half man? No. It's just a generic term for somebody who's large. So the word Nephilim just referred to uh, fallen ones. It doesn't have the, the connotation. Um, it's a generic term. It doesn't have a connotation of half angel, half man. Uh, so there, there were these Nephilim, and I translated it as monsters because that's, that's what they were, fallen monsters. So there were these giants, these fallen monsters on the earth in those days, and also afterward... When they, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And that refers to a lot of these um, uh, char- uh, characters that were referred to in various uh, myths and legends that people had. We're familiar with uh, the Romans and the Greeks, and you had people like Hercules, whose father was Zeus and whose mother was a, a human. And so you had a number of people who populated their their pantheons who were half God and half man. And so uh, these this is a reference to that. They they were uh, men of renown. The new um, the new living translation translates it uh, in those days and for some time after giant Nephilites. I like the way Alan Ross, who was my Hebrew professor at Dallas. Uh, translates it this way. I thought that was nice that he didn't use Nephilim because these terms get so caught up in a lot of these discussions. And so he's trying to, they were just, this was just the name for, for these giants. Uh, they lived on the earth for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times which is, I think, it gets the main point across and is fairly accurate. So this is all going on in this time period that lasted roughly uh, about 2,000 years from the time of the uh, creation of the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam uh, up, to, um, up to the time of the, of the flood, a little bit less than 2,000 years, depending on a couple of factors, which I'll go into in a minute. And so the Lord responds to this. He sees, he's watching. He's not going to let evil just go on forever and ever. He will bring punishment. One of the principles we're going to see is grace before judgment. And so it's a period of grace that God gives so that extending it so that those who could uh, turn uh, to God in salvation would have that opportunity. And he said, my spirit... Now, you have a translation in your, in a King James Version, which you're probably most familiar with, that says, My spirit shall not uh, strive with man forever. Now, the word translated strive is only used one time in ancient Hebrew, and that's in this verse. So do we know what it means? Not really. And so the the translators of the King James Version just took a stab at it based on their theological framework. 
But since then, we know a lot more, and there are other languages in the Middle East, like Arabic and Akkadian and Aramaic, that are very, very close to Hebrew. And closer even than, let's say, Spanish is to Italian. So that you can see the same root in Aramaic or in Arabic and in these other cognate languages, these other related languages, it always has the meaning of remaining with or abiding with somebody or staying with somebody. So what we see here is a statement, my spirit shall not abide with man forever. And I don't think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, some people believe that, but I don't think so. God, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus says in John 4. So I think this is just a reference. God is speaking of himself. And God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, continue to stay on the earth after he kicks Adam and Eve out. He surrounded the garden with an army of cherubs. Cherubim is the plural. He didn't put one there or two there. He surrounded it so no human being could get into the garden. And there's no revelation, is there? There's no scripture. So how did people find out? How did Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, they they have conversations with God. Where did they have those? They would go to the entrance of the Garden of Eden, which is where God's abode was on the earth, and uh, they would have an, uh, that's how they would get communication with God. But what happened? The earth becomes so sinful and rebellious that God said, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And that's when he begins to delegate things. Because what does he do after the fall, after the flood, rather? He delegates government to man. Well, wasn't there government before the flood? Yeah, there was. God living in the Garden of Eden. And and all mankind is just in rebelliousness. So, you know, we'd all like to flesh that out a lot more, but remember, we have about 2,000 years there, about 1,800 years between the creation of man in the Garden and the Flood. And it's covered in like three chapters. It's covered in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and it's and then we have a genealogy where if you follow it and these people are living we'll look at a chart in a minute they're they're living 900 years and so you have as many as nine generations living together at the same time the earth's population is going to be somewhere around 5 4 or 5 billion people just because you have all those people. Think about it. everybody going back a thousand years, going back to Thomas Aquinas and going back to Bonaventure and all of the medieval saints and going back to the early kingdoms in China. I mean, the middle kingdom in China, I guess. All of those people would still be alive. All of, can you imagine how populated China would be if they had seven or eight generations all living at the same time and Mao Zedong didn't come along and murder millions of them. I mean, we'd be all overrun. Well, there was a huge population on the earth. So the Lord says, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. My spirit will not abide with man forever for his flesh. 
yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, there's some debate over the meaning of that. Um, and I think what, what it, it, it's possible that I'd never heard this before, but I'm looking at this and it's possible that, that it means that, that he's going to reduce their lifespan so they don't have as long to be as evil. And it's going to be reduced from about 100 down to about 120. And um, that's one. A lot of people, the traditional interpretation of this is that God's going to give them 120 years before he wipes them out, grace before judgment. So verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, not some, he didn't have just some days when he just had some really evil thoughts. Every intent of his heart, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. That, that is an extreme statement. You can t- take it. I don't want you to spend too much time picturing this, but the last time you saw the news and they were picturing one of these really perverse LGBTQ parades back in June, that that was going on all over the world all the time. And God is just saying, you know, I'm done with it. So he's he's grieved in his heart. Now these are anthropopathisms, and and uh, he knew exactly what was happening. So here's a here's a timeline on the first ten generations. So Adam lived to be 930 years of age. Now this red line here go, marks pretty close to the end of Adam's life, and then Seth, his son, is 912 years. Enosh is 905. Kenan, 910, Mahalalel, 895, Jared, 962. See, there's, this marks pretty much the end of Adam's life. All of these generations are living at the same time. Enoch, uh, there was an earlier Enoch in the um, uh, Cain's line. And then Methuselah, you know, and, and Lamech is born just before Adam dies. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine generations alive at the same time. And people say, well, how would they know about sin? How would they know about God's grace? Because Adam and Eve are still there telling them about it. They're still alive. And then Noah is born... You know, sometime later, Methuselah dies just before the uh, flood comes, and Lamech uh, dies just before him. Enoch never died. He walked with God and was not, the Scripture says. How enigmatic is that? He was so close to God, God just let him walk with him right into heaven. I remember reading a Ripley's Believe It or Not when I was about 13 or 14 and there, there was a Ripley and you know they used to have those in the cartoons on the Sunday paper and uh, the oldest man in the Bible died before his father did. Think about it. Methuselah is the oldest man in the Bible but he died before Enoch did because Enoch still hasn't died. He just walked right into heaven. And then the flood occurs about 1,656 years after creation. That's the timeline. So history is going to march on. And what we're going to see is that uh, as a result of this, God is going to bring judgment upon the earth because of all that man has done. So we read in Genesis 6, 5, and 6, 
The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. It was incredibly bad, worse than anything you can imagine. Now, Romans 2.14 and 15 refers back to this, uh, back to this same uh, time period. Uh, rec- recognizing what, what the, those verses were saying is that those generations before Noah, when they were left to their own conscience, they just became more and more evil. Romans 2.14, referring generally back to history, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, they didn't have the law back then, by nature do the things in the law, there's a sense of right and wrong, these, although not having the law, then become a law to themselves, which is what happened before the flood, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So they had a conscience. But you see, Adam and Eve before the fall had a conscience that where the, where the standards, the values of right and wrong were defined by God, and what God told them, now it's defined by the people, and they were just doing whatever seemed right in their in their own minds, like during the period of the of the judges later on, and also uh, during the period of uh, under uh, Manasseh, uh, the king of Judah, who was so evil. And in Jeremiah chapter sixteen, um, fifteen and sixteen, is talking that that's the part of the indictment against that generation was that. They just did whatever their heart thought was right. Same idea as what, what's going on in Judges. So God's going to bring a judgment. It's a worldwide judgment. The flood is, he, he's going to reboot humanity, hit the restart button, and he is going to completely destroy Everything on the face of the earth, every living creature that is above the oceans, the sea creatures were not killed, but every breathing animal on the surface of the earth and every human being except for a small number that are going to be uh, rescued and preserved in Noah's ark. And he, he, God in his wisdom designs it in such a way that all of the genetic material uh, is going to be on the ark for human beings and for all of the other uh, families of animals. Really, the word kind, which we will see next week, is a word that probably has a broader meaning, much broader meaning than species, probably on the order uh, of family. So in Genesis 7.21 we read, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing and creeps on the earth. And so what we're going to see is a worldwide flood that drowns and buries all of these animals. So what do we see in these fossil beds? You know, tens of thousands of dead creatures who are packed in mud. That's exactly what we see. And so 7.22 says, All in whose nostril was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land, died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the earth, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. 
So why is Noah so special? Genesis 6, 8, and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's God's grace. Because we learn in in Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he was a believer. Like Abraham, he had believed God, and God had imputed righteousness to him. And then we're told this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. He's righteous because it was imputed to him. Noah walked with God. So there are five lessons we're going to learn, and we'll look at each of these uh, next time, but we'll just summarize these to begin with. There are five lessons uh, coming out of the flood. Number one, God gives grace before judgment. He just doesn't say, I fed up with you, and then brings judgment. We see this pattern all the way through Scripture. God extends grace to those he is going to judge, warning them and warning them and warning them until finally he is going to bring judgment. So there was about a 120-year grace period. Enoch warned them, who is uh, great-grandfather to Noah. From that time to Noah, there was a warning. Second, there's a decision as to who to save and who to judge. Those who are saved are those in the ark, those who trusted God, those who believed God. And those who are outside the ark were judged and condemned. Third, we see that there's only one way of salvation, and that's the ark. And there's only one way to enter the ark, and that's through the door that God provided. And, um, and so God always has only one way. It's God's way or the highway. And that's a problem from, from Satan, Lucifer, to Adam and Eve is authority orientation. People who can't listen and cannot respond to an authority who tells them what to do lack humility. If you lack humility, you'll always have trouble in your life. There's only one way of salvation for it. The world changed. The global flood changed the whole world. Everything, the world that then was, Peter says, perished. You can't find where the Garden of Eden was today. You can't find where those four rivers were today. You can't find anything that existed prior to the flood because uh, we're going to see a, I'm going to end with this because it's it's really, really cool. We have these views of, um, of the flood from children's books that are just so inadequate. The flood was horrific. It scared people. It was frightening. You think you would get scared if you were out of your house during Hurricane Harvey. What was happening during the time of the flood was on a scale that we cannot imagine. And uh, I'm going to shift over to this slide, and this is a two-minute video that is uh, based on an animation of what um, what was taking place geologically with the plate tectonics um, at, at that at that time, and it's just fascinating uh, to watch this and to imagine what it must have been like to be alive on land. Wait a minute, let me back it up.
the fountains of the deep opened, and then the windows of heaven burst forth, or the fountains of the deep burst forth, the windows of heaven opened. This would have produced earthquakes that were probably a hundred times more violent than anything we would experience today, and volcanoes everywhere. And then after that, you would have enormous tsunamis. That's about a two-minute video. There's there's like an hour-long video that's been put together on this that you ought to watch. Show it to your kids. This is it, you know so often the way you see the Noah's Ark portrayed, it's minimized, and it just you know little little, little bitty boat. You have the giraffe with its head sticking out, and the elephants looking out this way, and they minimize and trivialize this massive judgment that that destroyed. Uh, millions, maybe billions of people on the face of the planet at that time. So we'll come back next time and get into more of the details of the flood. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that we are indeed in the midst of a a spiritual warfare that is a warfare uh, energized by Satan and his revolt against you and that we play a role in that angelic revolt as witnesses uh, for uh, the prosecution, witnesses for you as to your grace and your goodness. So, Father, we pray that you would remind us of those things and also remind us uh, that, that there is accountability in our lives and that, um, and that as the world just seems out of control, that there will be a time when you will bring judgment and that judgment when it comes will be severe and will be horrific, and we're just thankful that we as members of the church will not live to see that, though it may get pretty bad before the rapture occurs. So, Father, we pray that we might be strengthened by our study of your word, knowing its accuracy and knowing its truthfulness, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.